Hello, and thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SBS Replay podcast from the New York University School of Professional Studies Student Council. Each podcast episode features a guest speaker from our How I Got Here lunchtime series, where we listen to the stories of our professors, alumni, and members of the community about their career, their journey, and above all, about how they got here. We are back with a fantastic lineup for this summer with amazing and inspiring stories that we cannot wait to share with you. This week is part two of the Olympic special featuring Cameron Myler, where her career in sports continues with governance of sports law at the Olympic level, litigating high-profile cases, and being a member of the anti-doping division at the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. The original session was recorded on Zoom and was hosted by Ding Nguyen. Before we start, so a very big and happy, happy summer to everybody. We are just 15 days away from the start of the Tokyo Olympics. Pretty much we, we just wrap up the Olympic and the Paralympic trials for, all, for like mostly all teams. They have been all over national television this week. So that's a really good way for you to get to know who is representing Team USA and basically they know who to root for. So that was very, very exciting. And then just a few weeks ago, actually, one of the swimmer for Team USA Paralympic Swimming, Jamal Hill, who we had the honor to interview back in April, he broke the national record for the S9 category, and he will be heading to Tokyo around August. We have this podcast episode ready, and it will be released later this August before the start of the Paralympic events. However, for today... I want to take you guys on a more insightful look at the games and basically, you know, to see beyond the actions on every track, on every court, every pitch, and beyond the Olympic flame, especially on, like, you know, the governance side of it and, like, the sports law side. So we're proud to have Professor Cameron Myler for the second time this season after a Hall of Fame career in the sports of Luge with multiple national championships, World Cup medals, and appearances at four Winter Olympic Games for Team USA. Professor Myla continued her career in sports law and using sports to develop society. She is now an arbitrator with the Court of Arbitration for Sports in Lausanne, Switzerland, resolving cases in athletes' eligibility, doping, ethics, and commercial, and was on the anti-doping division at the 2018 Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang. Well, that it's the Olympic Games that was it BTS or EXO performed at the closing ceremony? It, it was a very fun one. <laughs> and then alongside that, she had represented Olympic athletes, sports organizations, and advised media and entertainment clients in a variety of commercial matters, litigated high-profile intellectual property cases. She was also a member of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee Ethics and Governance Task Force that developed and led the implementation of significant changes to the governance structure, and also testify before the U.S. House Subcommittee on Commerce, Trade, and Consumer Protection on behalf of the task force. Alongside that, she is committed to using sports for development and social change, an ambassador for Kids Play International, an Olympic ambassador for Athlete Ally, and a supporter of numerous international organizations advocating for gender equity and integrity policies in sports. So everybody, please help me welcome back Professor Cameron Myler. Phew, that was uh, that was a lot, Tian. Maybe you, you can just like talk the whole time here. Well, uh, it'll be good. Well, I, 
thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to be back for the second time, especially because we are just a couple of weeks out from the Olympic Games. And there's so many fun topics to, to talk about. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, and I'm here with Flash, my, my chewy dog. She has to make an appearance. If you if you have class with me, you'll you'll probably see her in the in the fall if I can sneak her into the classroom. But she's my teaching assistant, rescue dog, and good friends. So all right, I'm ready. And and she has an Instagram account. She does have an Instagram <laughs> account. Yes, and if you take my class, you might get like an extra point if you subscribe to friend her on, on Instagram. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So it is of great importance that. Basically, we continue to talk about the Olympics because we're just 15 days away from the start of the games in Tokyo. And right this morning, Eastern Time, the the International Olympic Committee, after like a five-party meeting that also include the Japanese government, decided that there will be no fans in the stadiums. So like... What are your thoughts on that decision? And what do you think it's like, how like, will it impact the Olympic Games as we know it before? Well, it is, it is really difficult to imagine what this Olympic Games will be like as an athlete. I understand that the, it's the International Olympic Committee, Tokyo 2020, which is the organizing committee for the Olympic Games in Japan, you know, getting everything ready for this great event that's coming up. And the Japanese government, you know, everyone trying to make decisions that will provide an environment that is as safe as possible for for everyone. I mean, we none of us have ever experienced anything like this before. The the organizers of the event have not experienced anything like this before at an Olympic Games, and it's a really tough decision. So I, I don't think they made it lightly, but there are concerns about the number of, of people in Tokyo, particularly Japan generally, but more so even in Tokyo who have contracted the virus recently. So I think there's now a state of emergency in, in Tokyo and they, they just want people to be as safe as possible. But that being said, you know, having competed in four Olympic games, I can't really imagine what it's going to be like as an athlete there. So so first of all, when, I mean, when you walk into the opening ceremonies, I mean, for me, and I think for many athletes, that's the moment when you feel like, oh, I've actually made the Olympic team for my country. I'm one of the best athletes in the world. I'm here to, you know, see what I can do on this, on this world stage. And when you walk into the, uh, you know, the opening ceremony stadium and hear like the, you know, the crowd and it's, it's the atmosphere that's created is in such a large part due to the excitement of the people in the, in the stadium. And, you know, before COVID, the, the interest of the Japanese people to, to buy tickets to go to, you know, whether opening or closing ceremonies or to any of the sporting events. And I mean, from, you know, track and field and swimming, uh, the and gymnastics, the very popular ones, of course, to table tennis and archery and smaller sports. The you know, all of the tickets were sold out. So, one, I think it will really impact the experience of athletes in the stadium, of course. And then the the organizers are going to have to deal with refunding like millions of tickets. That is going to be a logistical uh, challenge and. And then, you know, if you are 
one of the broadcast partners like NBC is in the United States. You know, they pay billions of dollars to broadcast the games in the United States on a variety of TV networks, online, you know, everywhere. Part of what they are showing the American public, you know, those of us who are watching at home, you know, you're you're seeing the the sporting event, but you're also seeing you know the crowds and the parents in the stands and all of those people who have supported athletes over their careers, you know, as they as they got closer to the game. So so that will be that will be missing. Uh, I, I think if, if that's the choice that needs to be made in order for the Olympics to actually happen uh, in 15 days, then uh, I guess that's what <laughs> that's what we're going to be left with. Definitely, and it is it is very unfortunate. It is a very unfortunate uh, situation for Japan because, uh, like honestly, nobody saw this coming. Because uh, like if we go back to like 2016 after the end of the Rio Games, and basically Japan made an amazing introduction i think they got like if i remember they got a great video basically showcasing like uh, japanese culture and then they end the entire thing with if everybody in the audience like if you guys play like mario like super mario basically at the end of that there was like a, a water pipe in the middle of the maracanya stadium and then the former prime minister of japan shinzo abe basically appeared with like a red globe like you know basically like representing the Japanese flag and that was like there were high expectations but like nobody saw this coming but I think I still think that like you know like basically like you said the power of sports and like you know we can still see the emotions and like the competition like I think that's I think it's still going to be like a great mark of basically like you know we're getting out of this COVID-19, we're getting out of this pandemic. And I think it will still inspire like a great generation ahead. I, Tian, I, I agree with you on that. And, and one great thing about the Olympic Games is that there are always like, unexpected performances. You know, athletes who have maybe never won a medal at a World Cup or World Championship, and they have this amazing performance on the day of their competition at the Olympic Games. So I'm sure we are going to see some you know, really great and inspiring stories uh, from athletes at the games. We'll just be seeing those from home and our you know, <laughs> TV or phone or whatever other device we're using to, to watch the event. So before we continue our conversation on your career in sports law, so is there an athlete on Team USA, any sports that you you have been following and you're expecting to become like the breakout star of the Olympic Games in Tokyo? So, you know, I uh, that's an excellent question. And and I am actually going to alter your question a little bit because, you know, when, when we watch the Olympics on NBC, uh, of course, the network focuses mostly on American athletes, but this is, you know, it's, it's an international event. There are athletes from 206 different countries and territories around the world. And I, you know, I like to kind of keep an open mind about, oh, who are some, uh, you know, athletes, not just, you know, not just American athletes <laughs> who might be, who might be really fun to watch. So, so I, I picked out a few. So one, I'm really interested uh, to see how he performs, seeing that, you know, Usain Bolt uh, will not be competing, uh, like who's going to be the next uh, great sprinter. And there's an athlete from South Africa, Akane Simbini, and he is, so he's going into the Olympics as the fastest African athlete ever in the 100 meters. So he just ran 
this past week. So July 6th at a meet in Hungary, he posted a time of 9.84 seconds in the 100 meters. And uh, so he's on fire. And I am, I'm really excited to see what, what he does at the Games. American athlete, not, not a breakout, but I mean, who's not excited to see what Simone Biles is going to do at the games? <laughs> Unbelievable. She, I mean, she just gets better and better and better. And it, it's really extraordinary because you know, particularly in gymnastics, it seems like athletes have a kind of a, like a one Olympics window of being extraordinary, like being on, you know, on the top of their game and doing like all of these incredible things. And she has, this will be her second games and as we've seen in the last you know month or so she's doing incredible things so i'm i'm really excited to see what uh, what simone does at the games and then just a couple a, a couple more points the first out trans athlete will be competing in weightlifting Laurel hubbard was selected by new zealand as a member of their their weightlifting team. So I'm looking forward to seeing her performance. There's also a trans athlete on the U.S. team for BMX cycling, but she's an alternate. So it's not clear whether she will compete in Tokyo or not. I think she'll go with the team and you know, has the possibility to compete if one of her teammates does. So that's, uh, I think that's going to be really interesting to see that you know, the IOC and other international sport organizations are looking to you know, make sports as diverse and inclusive as possible while, you know, keeping the playing field fair. Excited to see those athletes compete. And then finally in Tokyo, we've got, we've got some new sports on the program. So, so surfing, skateboarding, sport climbing, all brand new, have never been in the Olympics before. I think those will be like really fast paced and interesting to watch. Karate is on the program and then baseball and softball are back on the program. They were yes. pre- previously out, but, but back in. So are you a, are you a baseball, baseball, softball fan? I actually went to like baseball games in, in both, both in Japan and both in America oh. and Japanese baseball games. It's, it's so much it's better, so- right? Yes, like like I went okay, like okay, I love the Mets, but American baseball game it's just like you're sitting there, sitting where's my, there. Where's sitting my chicken? Where's my chicken bucket? Oh, here it is. And then like, and then I wait in like, and uh, then you take a nap, and then maybe something happens. So Tiana, I'm totally with you on that, and I and I, you know, I'm really disappointed I won't be in Japan this summer at the Olympics because. I love Japan and I, I've got a lot of friends there and I would have been so excited to be at the games and I would have totally gone to a baseball game. And, and I say like you, and I will like actually admit this, even though things are being recorded here, I'm not a huge fan of baseball in the United States, but when I had the chance to go to a baseball game in Japan with NYU students, it is like this entirely different experience. And for for every athlete on the home team, there's a song that the entire stadium <laughs> sings. They, like the whole time, the guys at bat. It's it's unbelievable. Everyone is so excited, and they have on the like on the foul 
fall lines, there are little sections, seating sections that kind of go out into like the fall foul ball line. And it's called like the exciting seats. And I was asking someone, I was like, really? Like you can sit there with like the risk of getting hit in the head with a baseball? They're like, oh yeah, you actually have to pay more money to sit in those seats. Like what? Okay. This would never happen in the United States because everybody sues everybody else. Someone's going to get hit in the head and like, that'll be that. But it's, it's like such a great experience. So I, you know, this is another reason why it's, it's really so tragic for Japan that the, you know, the spectators will not be allowed at any of the events because I think everyone was so excited to go to see athletes compete. And, and you know, just for a little context, countries spend, you know, between seven and 10 years planning for and getting ready for an Olympic game. So this has been a long time coming. The Japanese people were like really prepared, excited. All of the venues were ready. I've seen everything. And it, I think it's going to be an incredible games despite the lack of spectators, but it, it is too bad, especially because Japan was and previously had the Olympic summer Olympic games in 1964, but they had been awarded the Summer Games in 1940, which were canceled due to World War II. And then there was another you know, 24 years before they were allowed to host the Games. So given that history and like, oh, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening to, uh, to Tokyo. But I, I, I think we're going to see some exciting competition and, and competition and also like it's like the best of people comes out through through sport. And I think that's really one thing that sets the Olympic Games apart. Definitely. Wow. I <laughs> I got really excited, like remembering great things about like baseball games in, in Japan. So to our audience, it's an insane experience. There's there, there's no walk-up music when entire like sitting section is your walk-up music. I'm just gonna leave it at that. <laughs> so I think like I'm gonna take our conversation to your your work beyond the luge track. So after a Hall of Fame career, championships and like national titles, and also like going to the Olympics four or five times, four times, <laughs> yeah, four. <laughs> four times. Can you tell us when you decided to call it? I don't know. I don't know what's the right expression, but like when you decide to switch from your athletics career to basically a career in sports law. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I, you know, I spent, I was on the national team for 14 years during, starting in high school. I made the national team when I was 15. So I, I was competing while I was in high school. I went to Dartmouth undergrad, uh, which in part because it's on Porter's. So I was able to go to school in the spring and summer and then train and travel and compete with the luge team in the fall and winter. So it was kind of perfect. I was there for seven years. So if anyone's taking a little longer than like the usual four, hey, like it all works, <laughs> it all works out in the end, it's fine. Non-traditional paths I think can be really rewarding. But for those 14 years, we, the national team traveled from like October, beginning of October through December. So usually about 10, a 10 or 11 weeks, you'd be on the road and at a different track every week. So we, we would travel and train at tracks where the World Cup races and World Championship and Olympic Games would, would be. So there was, we spent most of the time in Europe, you know, a lot of time in Japan leading up to the games there. 
so it's like 10 or 11 weeks in the fall. And then after the winter holidays, another eight weeks on the road. So I was on the road from October until March every year for 14 years. And it's, it's a lot. And, and Tian, you know, you said, you know, my work on the luge track and I thought, well, that's about right because it is you know, as much as, uh, you know, as an athlete, you have to love your sport, of course, to do it, but it is a full-time pursuit and, uh, and a job in, in a lot of ways. So I was, I was ready for a change. And I thought I had accomplished everything that I could as, as an athlete. So like many students, you know, like many of you, I, I was struggling with like, hmm, what do I do? Like I was, I was, you know, really great at this sport and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with that really useful degree in geography that I have from Dartmouth. <laughs> so I better figure out a plan. So while I was still competing, I was on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's Board of Directors and Athletes Advisory Council. So the Athletes Advisory Council, AAC, has one athlete from each Olympic and Paralympic sport. And essentially, the, the group provides advice to the Board of Directors and other committees within the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee about policy issues that impact athletes. So, so I love that role. I really liked being able to make a difference for my fellow athletes, like the governance, you know, how, how the sport organizations worked really, uh, really interested me. And, and I met a lot of lawyers and I was on, I was on the board for eight years. So I did a lot of, I worked on a lot of different committees and yeah, I was, I was really intrigued by what I did as a volunteer. So in that, in that context, I met lawyers who were practicing at law firms, lawyers who were working as in-house counsel, maybe you know, at a national governing body of sport like USA Track and Field, or uh, individuals who had gone to law school, maybe practiced law, but were working in a business capacity, but found that their law degree was, was useful to them. So I thought, oh, Hmm, okay, that sounds interesting. And maybe it, you know, going to law school would give me a, a good skill set and allow me to combine a professional career with my interest in sport. I wasn't quite sure how that, in, where that inter intersection was going to happen, but I thought, okay, I'm going to go to law school. So I applied in the fall before my last Olympics, which was in Nagano in Japan and got in, I went to, I ended up going to Boston College the year after I retired from Luge. So Luge, my last Olympics was in 98, February, and then I started law school that, that August. And I, as a first year, you know, you don't really have any choice about what classes you take. So in, in property, we had a visiting professor. He was an intellectual property lawyer and we did a lot a lot more IP than you would otherwise do in a, in like first year property class in, in law school and I thought it was really interesting to realize there were many like so many ways that intellectual property impacts the sports industry so you know just like the assets of the International Olympic Committee I mean we all know those those five rings right the uh, the olympic rings is the most recognized trademark in the world and the IO, the ioc owns the rights they give each national olympic committee the the right to use those for you know various fundraising purposes sponsorships things like that but ip is is you know it's really important in sports and it's it's a really dynamic area of law so i thought 
oh, interesting. Okay, so if I don't get one of those like two jobs at the you know Proskauer big firm in New York City that has a sports law practice, if I don't get one of those, then I'm going to I'm going to look for an intellectual property job at a at a big firm. Hopefully, I'll transition to sport at some point. So, I, and I also decided I, I liked litigation. So you know, as in like going into the courtroom and arguing, representing a client in a dispute and, you know, potentially arguing before, you know, judge on a motion or at trial. And I think that was a little bit of my competitive nature, but <laughs> it's, I, you know, I ended up working on Wall Street at a big, big financial services firm for two years. And then I went to a smaller firm, boutique media and entertainment firm for eight years. And when shortly after I got there, I started representing athletes who had uh, doping uh, disputes. And I, you know, I, I speak with a lot of students at NYU who might be interested in going to law school. And, you know, I, I teach sports law both to our undergraduate and grad students. And, and I, I love it. I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great intro to you know, the variety of legal issues that come up in the context of sport, which regardless of the area that, you know, anyone ends up working in in sport, you're going to deal with contracts or, you know, labor law issues or intellectual property, you know, with a sponsorship or endorsement, or if you're an agent. So for me, it was, I, and I enjoyed practicing law. I didn't love it. So when the opportunity came up to start teaching at NYU, I was like, this is excellent because I, I get to sort of use all of the experience I had practicing, practicing law, my experience as an athlete and all of the governance work that, that I did. But at the beginning, I mean, looking back now, it seems like, oh, that all worked out really well. But at the time, like you kind of never know exactly what's, what's next, which you know, is, is a, I think a really good sort of reason why it's important to you know, keep an open mind and to you know, meet as many people as you can and see what's interesting to you. I, I think a lot of students in, in our program at, at NYU come in thinking, many students come in thinking, oh, I want to be the, you know, work in the front office of the Yankees or be an agent. Like, okay, and there's so many other things, uh, so many other things that you can do. So it's, I think it's really important to keep, keep an open mind, which, which I did. So that's a, that's a little bit of my professional journey, I guess. And on the, on the arbitration front, I, I was appointed to the court of arbitration for sport. So it's based in Lausanne, Switzerland. CAS essentially decides sports related cases. They might be eligibility cases, certainly a lot of doping cases, and then soccer, or a lot of football, football, soccer, where, wherever you're based in the world, commercial cases. So, you know, transfer of, of players from one team to another. And so, so CAS essentially arbitration is fairly close to a, a court proceeding. You know, everything's under oath. It, it, you're just in sort of a less formal setting. It might be in the conference room at a, at a law firm, but it's uh, an arbitration hearing essentially works the same way that a trial does. So I've been an arbitrator for a little over five years and have decided doping cases and eligibility cases and went to the Olympics in Pyeongchang as one of the six arbitrators deciding the doping cases. So it's it's great. I, I really like being on this side of the of the bench and, and hearing and deciding the cases that come up. 
in our class, I, I don't remember which which sports class that I took, but like, I think one of our professors said that, that there was a joke that the how much of like lawyers in like the sports industry, and then somebody said something about yeah, oh yeah, the NBA is not basketball; it's nothing but attorneys. <laughs> And I was like, it's true. And there are so many lawyers in, in sports and it's really, it's a, a rigorous degree. It's a great education and it really helps you sort of be able to analyze a whole variety of, of situations and, and issues, not just, not just legal problems, but a, a whole wide uh, wide range. And it's sort of another, you know, layer of, of credibility. And it's so yeah, it's I think it's a very useful degree that has a lot of potential applications. So if anyone wants to chat about law school <laughs> at any point, please feel free to shoot me an email. And, and we should say like, if people have questions, they should, uh, should they put those in the in the chat? Yes, yes. Uh, if you have any questions for Professor Myla, definitely put them in the chat. And I will visit them like as soon as I can. Continue with the like arbitration and your work with the Court of Arbitration for Sports. You were on the anti-doping division at the 2018 PyeongChang Games. So yep. can you take us through maybe like a day in the life at the games? <laughs> and then are there like crazy cases that like, you know, like we, we, we did not have to mention kind of like the parties, but like what's like the craziest, what's like the craziest argument that you have heard? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> kind of a lot in that question. So, so I'll just say to start that, so any dispute that comes up at the Olympic Games, whether it's you know, an athlete test positive after a doping test or an athlete thinks maybe they should have been chosen to compete on the you know, four by 100 relay team and they weren't, any kind of dispute that comes up at the Olympics must be heard by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And that has, that's been the case since 1996. So before then, you had to go to court, which is really not any kind of good solution, in the, usually in the context of sport, because it doesn't happen quickly enough, I mean, first and foremost. So CAS, the arbitrators at the Olympic Games, essentially you, you have to decide the case within 24 hours. So it's, it, it, you're on, you're kind of on call all the time and you have to be prepared for, Hey, a positive test comes up, you've got to decide the case. So an athlete can potentially, you know, compete the next day if they have to, there are two different sort of divisions at the Olympic games since Rio, there is now it's called the anti-doping division. And that's the division I was in at the, at the PyeongChang games in 2018. So we decided there were six of us. We decided any doping cases that came up. And fortunately, I mean, fortunately for the athletes, there were not too many positive tests. They, they conducted more than 3000 drug tests at the Olympics. And there were only five positives. So it was, it was interesting because they said, Cass said, Okay, we'll assign the cases to the arbitrators, and it was just one arbitrator would uh, would decide each doping case. So there were five cases and six arbitrators. So they said, "We'll assign the cases in the order that you arbitrators arrived in Korea." I'm like, okay, whatever, you have to decide somehow. So that that's fine. So when it was my turn, I should have been assigned to. It was the first Russian case, so there were oh. two 
there were two Olympic athletes from Russia who tested positive for a prohibited substance. And, and the first case was for a medal. Uh, and Cass said, Cameron, normally like this case, you would be assigned to this case, but there is a medal at stake and we don't want there to be any, you know, the, of course the Olympic games are not supposed to be political in any sense, but they said, you know, to sort of err on the side of caution, we'll assign this to someone not from the United States, just so there are like no, like no Russia, U.S. sort of tensions exacerbated by you deciding this. Okay, that's fine. So I know. It's like, all right. And it was, it was curling and people are like, really? Like curling? What could you possibly take as an athlete to enhance your performance? And, you know, who knows? I, I think no matter what the sport, there's something that an athlete can take to make themselves, you know, faster or more calm or, you know, have better endurance or something. So there are a whole variety of prohibited substances. And anyway, I ended up being assigned to, it was, it was actually the second Russian case and female athlete, bobsled athlete, she and her partner had finished, I believe, sixth. And then she tested positive for a substance. So we were notified of the case. It was the Friday before the closing ceremonies. So I, I learned about the case at about eight o'clock in the evening. And I had to write up the up the papers. And so it was was kind of like like, okay, like we're kind of, you know, getting the you've got a limited amount of time to get your assignment in or, you know, finish your work. And I was up not like all night long, but I was up, you know, really late working on the papers. Her lawyer had only until like eight o'clock the next morning to make a response. And the the athletes in the doping cases basically had to decide, do I accept the allegation that I violated the anti-doping rules? And if the answer was yes, they could reserve the right to argue later on in a hearing, like get a lawyer, get a defense together, and then argue why their sanction should be reduced. So all of the athletes did that, but it also meant that, I mean, within 24 hours, all of these athletes were disqualified from their events. Their credentials were, you know, taken back by the International Olympic Committee, and they were, you know, evicted from the Olympic Village, and most of them were sent home immediately. So, so things happen really quickly, but that is the that's the great thing about arbitration in the context of sport. It can happen very fast. That court, no way. And, and, and sometimes arbitration. So, you know, you ask like, what, what's like one of the craziest cases that I've had? So I'm, I would say like not crazy with respect to the arguments, but I think this is a good example of how quickly arbitration can work and why it's so important. So it was just before I left for the uh, Olympics in Pyeongchang and I got a call from the American Arbitration Association and they managed the arbitration case, cases in the United States. So they said, oh, hey, we may need to have an emergency hearing today. Are you available? And I said, yeah, sure. Or like, okay, I'm ready. Like, let's, let's go. And they said, well, we, we're, we're not quite sure yet. It was one o'clock in the afternoon. They said, we should know by like five or six o'clock. I said, okay, well, tell me like, what's the, what's the substance? And this will probably, this will, uh, after this, we will probably segue into uh, Shakari Richardson, but this was, this, this was also a THC case. So this was a, this was a marijuana case. And the AAA said, 
Cameron, the only like you need to be aware, we need a decision by 2 a.m. because that's when the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee has to name like the final athletes on the Olympic roster. I said, okay. And just the operative decision, did the athlete commit an anti-doping rule violation or not? And then I had another like two weeks to write the whole, you know, the reason decision out. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready. And I, I heard from them at about 6 p.m. They said, okay, we need that. We need to have the hearing. I got the submissions from the athlete's lawyer at about 7.30 in the evening, USADA, the US Anti-Doping Agency, I said, folks, I need your papers by 10 o'clock, you know, 10 p.m. so we can have the hearing and I can make a decision. They're like, oh, we don't think we can do that. I'm like, okay, well, send me your papers and then I need 15 minutes to read the papers and then we'll have the hearing. And, you know, just to give like a little context, normally, like if, if a doping case is being decided when there's not a, a, like an imminent deadline, these take about three months. So, you know, you, there are like all sorts of submissions and you get documents from both sides and, you know, a lot of discovery you know, information about the case. And then there's like a whole hearing and it's, it's a much longer process. So I got USADA's papers at about 10.15. We started the hearing at 10.30. And I remember exactly when the hearing finished because I thought, oh my gosh, I have 49 minutes to decide if someone's going to go to the Olympic Games or not. So I decided that, you know, given, given the rules and, and how the, you know, the interpretation of the rules, I decided that he had not committed an anti-doping rule violation, in which case, like those decisions are not published. Only if someone is found to, you know, be like, if it's, if it's a positive test, then the decision is published and anybody can read those. But yeah, so that was that was the quickest one. So I mean, it was all within, you know, less than twelve hours that you you know somebody was able to access a process and have a you know neutral person with experience in sport decide you know, decide the case. So that's my craziest story. I think <laughs> I think for you, yeah. if not, there are I mean, there are some crazy defenses that it, sometimes that you hear, and I always think oh my gosh, like, why did you not get a lawyer before you said that to the media? Seriously? So I think that, Tian, the, the craziest defense that I heard was, so it was a cyclist, so it was a blood doping issue, and, and the anti-doping agency found there were two types of blood in this guy's body. They're like, okay, well, how do you explain that? Transfusion? Well, that would explain it, but he didn't have a transfusion. So it's like, okay, what can you possibly come up with? And the, the explanation was that the athlete was a chimera, which means that when his mother was pregnant with him, he had a twin that died in utero. And then all of the like DNA from the other fetus was absorbed into the cyclist. And like, that was the explanation. And I was like, what? And the arbitration panel also was like, um, yeah, maybe not. We don't, <laughs> we, we don't accept that explanation, but you know, I guess you have to be creative within that, reason, within reason, given the facts, yeah. but it's that, that defense. Okay. It's, it's a little yeah. bit out of sports, but like, I think I'm going to call that defense, the Dwight Schrute defense. Cause like there was an episode in the office where 
he said like similar to that of like how he got so strong, but it's <laughs> it's impossible. It is not possible at yep. all. So, so you mentioned earlier that we're gonna transition to Shakari Richardson, who has been dominating like all the news recently. Yeah. So just to give a little bit of background to everybody, so a few days ago she. She was given a one-month suspension from the U.S. track and field team after her doping test found that she was positive to, okay, I'm going to butcher this with cannabinoids, uh, like or basically like marijuana. So she was primed for a gold medal in Tokyo, but you know it's like with that suspension, I and eventually she was like she got off the the team eventually. So all the emotions, all the tweets aside. Let's go into this from like a law perspective. So, can you explain a little bit on why the ban was given, and then also we mentioned about words like substance, and then also anti-doping agency. So, let's talk a little bit about the prohibited list, WADA, and yeah, it's like yeah. I think it's a situation that I think everybody would want to know, like exactly like what happened there. Okay. Yeah. It. This is a tough case. I mean. Shakari, I think, you know, everyone was like, she had such a great performance and uh, the fans or family, everyone was super excited that she had made the Olympic team and then she tested positive for marijuana. Uh, so I know a lot of people and maybe folks on the, on the call, but certainly sort of, you know, generally in, in the media, a lot of people have been saying like, seriously like what's that's crazy like of course she should be able to go to the olympic games it's just some marijuana so i i have sympathy for her that i know she you know i know she had a difficult family situation which she which she said and and she admitted like yeah i i you know i use i use marijuana so here's the thing if you are competing for you know training and competing hopefully in the olympic or paralympic games as an athlete, you are subject to the World Anti-Doping Code. So it's a, it's a set of rules. The World Anti-Doping Agency was first created in 1999 as an independent agency to come up with rules that apply to everybody. So before that, like each country, each sport had different rules, different sanctions, different lists of substances you weren't allowed to take. And WADA really sort of harmonized that on a, on a global basis. So it, it's, it's a set of rules that you have to comply with if you want to compete as an athlete. So each year, the, the prohibited list, so there's a list, it's about 10 pages long, and it lists all of the, the substances and like types of substances that athletes are not allowed to take. If you're an athlete and you're in this testing pool, and, and if you're in the testing pool, by the way, like you are subject to drug testing in competition like Shakari at the at the track and field Olympic trials and you're also subject to out of competition testing which literally means 24/7 uh, an anti-doping agency can send it, they're called a DCO a drug control officer to your house and ask for a urine and or blood sample and you know they don't they generally don't like abuse that power and show up at 3 a.m. But the point of the out of competition testing is, hey, if, Tian, if you don't know when I'm going to show up at your door, it makes it more difficult for you to be on like a planned. Hey, I'm going to take steroids and these are you know these drugs leading up to the Olympic Games and then stop before the race and then I'm not going to get caught. 
So, you know, she got tested in competition. And, uh, you know, I want to say ab about, about THC and marijuana. So it's in that cannabinoid category. It's only prohibited in competition. So the IOC and the other international sport organizations do not care so much what you're doing. You know, if you're smoking, using whatever, eating some edibles, whatever you're doing, if it's out of competition, they're really not, they don't care so much about that. So it's only prohibited in competition. And it is, it's a little different than say steroids. So let's say I, you know, I give a urine or blood sample, some kind of steroid shows up. It doesn't matter how much, any amount of steroids that shows up, it's prohibited. And that counts as a positive test. That's not the case with THC. It's actually, it's called a threshold substance. So only if your level is above 150 nanograms per milliliter, does it count as a positive test? So I, you know, I, I understand that, you know, a lot of people are unhappy about the decision, but you know, the rules as they exist apply to all athletes. And, uh, you know, unfortunately as an athlete, you're expected to know what the, what the rules are. So while I have, you know, I certainly have sympathy for her, her family situation, athletes competing at, at that level, particularly, you know, should know what is, what is and isn't prohibited. Yes. Hopefully this can give our audience like a little bit more information to all the news that has been happening like these recent days. And <clears throat> actually yesterday in an ESPN article, she actually said that there's like a lot more, she, I think she is 21 years old there. She still said that she, there's a lot more Olympic games for her ahead. So I think definitely, you know, I don't think this like one month suspension is like the end of her running career, but like, you know, we can see her at the home crowd in Los Angeles, 2028. I think that's, I think that's well, something. Hopefully, hopefully Paris in 24 and then Los Angeles in 28. And I hope so too. And it's, you know, it's just really, it's really unfortunate timing that this happened, you know, the one month ban. And the sanctions have been, you know, reduced in the most recent version of the World Anti-Doping Code. So if it's like marijuana or a, they're calling them a, a substance of abuse, like cocaine or some other recreational drug, you can get your sanction reduced by by quite a bit. So it might just be a couple of months, but for her, that you know, that one month ban is going to mean not not competing at the you know at the games. Yes. Yeah, so the you know the the rules apply to everybody and. And just, uh, you know, it might be interesting to know. So the World Anti-Doping Code, when they decide which substances are added to that prohibited list, they look at three, three criteria and they say any substance has to meet two of the three criteria. So one is it enhances or could potentially enhance the performance of an athlete. So that makes sense. The second one is related to the health of the athlete. So it has to either negatively impact or have the possibility of negatively impacting the health of the athlete. And then the third one, which is, you know, it's a lot more subjective. It is basically, it violates the spirit of sport. So the World Anti-Doping Agency just has to say, okay, so marijuana meets two of those three criteria. And, you know, they, WADA and the IOC basically say, well, it could you know, it could enhance the, the performance of an athlete. It seems like 
snowboarding athletes' performances are enhanced <laughs> by marijuana use. I don't know. And then you know, the harm, they said, well, the harm, it could be harm to the athlete using marijuana, or it actually might, you know, if, if their reactions are slowed down or it impacts their performance in a, in a situation where they could injure another athlete, that could be a problem. And Tian, I mentioned before we started that I would just tell you quickly, like how and when marijuana was added to the prohibited list. And it was in, so in 1998 was the first time that, uh, so that was the Winter Olympics in Japan, in Nagano. And that was the first year that snowboarding was added to the, to the program. And the Canadian athlete who won the men's half pipe tested positive for marijuana. And the IOC said, we're taking your gold medal. And he was like, I'm going to arbitration. So they went to arbitration and you know, the, the arbitrators said, like IOC, we get it. Like we understand that you don't like the fact that he tested positive for marijuana. However, it's not on the prohibited list. So you can't, can't take his medal as a result of that. So it, it went on the list immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like an re instant reaction. And so just one more question. This prohibited list, like, do they get like updated? I think every year, if I'm correct. They do. Yeah. So the, when, when athlete samples, so urine or blood samples are tested there, they test for the laboratories test for all of the substances that are on the prohibited list. And they can also see like other things that are in there. So maybe an example would be when Maria Sharapova tested positive for a drug called meldonium that had just been added to the prohibited list. So, so WADA observed a trend in particularly Eastern European athletes whose samples were showing up, meldonium was showing up in their samples, but it wasn't prohibited. So, so WADA was just kind of keeping tabs on that and you know, did a little research to see like, what is it used for. Normally it's used for like heart related issues and the normal course of a dosage is like three to four months. Many Eastern European athletes, including Maria Sharapova, had been taking meldonium for like years and years and years. So there was some concern that they were using the drug to enhance their aerobic capacities. So, so that was, you know, it was monitored for a period of time and then added, added to the list. Yeah. And so that's, it's updated. Uh, it, the new list goes into effect. It's announced in September and then it goes into effect in January. So there are, the athletes have a few months to, you know, know and understand what's on the new list and to hopefully stop taking those things that might have been added. <laughs> yes, this, this was, I think essentially like we, what we are having right now is more than just a conversation, but it's like a sports law masterclass. <laughs> I enjoyed <laughs> every minute of it so far. And so I just want to ask you from all the cases that maybe you have arbitrated all the clients that you have represented and from what you have seen governing like at the Olympic and Paralympic level and in the anti-doping division. So mm -hmm. why do athletes cheat and use performance enhancing drugs like these? Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a tough question. And, and I, I think I, you know, could answer this even without having, you know, heard cases as, as an arbitrator. I, so I, I mentioned earlier that I made the national team when I was 15 and I, when I was first competing in international competition in Luge, there was still an East Germany and Soviet Union and 
the women from those teams were definitely on great doping plans. They were like, Hugh, oh my gosh, they were so like my height and like 40 pounds heavier and so much stronger. And we're always luge. The, the start is really important and it's, it loses the only, the only Olympic sport that's timed to the thousandth of a second. So if you're even like a hundred slower at the start, you can't make up that time on the way down. So I like, I competed against athletes who were cheating. So why do, why do people cheat? So they can win so they can perform at a you know higher level than they would have been able to otherwise. I think in more recent years, you know, the last whatever, 10, 20 years, athletes, there are more opportunities, more commercial opportunities if you are the the best or the second best or you know, like in the top three. So maybe you have an opportunity to get a you know a sponsorship deal or an endorsement deal or you know, enough money from your sponsors to continue, to continue to compete. So there's that, you know, to be the, to be the best, to be the fastest. I, I think there, there's all of that, which, you know, I, I, my best at the Olympics was fifth. And for, I have to say, you know, for a long time, I was really disappointed that I didn't win a medal at the games, but I can say, you know, quite proudly so that I, I went to each of those games, I did the best that I could on that day. And, you know, I gave it everything that I had, not everything that me and steroids had. So I, you know, I, I did the best that I possibly could. I had an awesome career. I'm like, I'm so thankful for all of my experiences in sport. And it definitely has impacted my, you know, my my, my personal life, my professional life, you know, what I do at NYU. So it's all been like a really incredible experience, thankfully, without any drugs involved. <laughs> yes, I think that's a great way to basically summarize why athletes should stay away from doping and performance enhancing drugs. Exactly like you said, it's about what I can do, not me and the drugs can do. I think... And- <laughs> Right. I'm going uh, to print that. I'm going to put it on my wall. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I, I know we're getting to the end of our, our time here, but you know, one of Tian, one of the questions and maybe the last one that was on the list that you sent was, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for the Olympic movement and, and for sports, which I think ties into, to what I just said. And, and, and you said looking at the year 2050. So, you know, some, uh, a few decades from now, like what are the Olympic games and sport going to look like? And I, and you know, my hope is that the Olympic movement is the leader in, you know, setting an example of what sport can do and how it can positively impact each and every one of us. It is, you know, I hope that sport will continue to you know, showcase the best that each and every one of us can be, whether it's as an athlete or as a student or, you know, whatever you're doing in your everyday life, because that's something that, that as an athlete, I, I certainly was striving for all the time to, you know, to be the best that I could and, and to challenge myself every single day. You know, how can I be better physically? What can I do, you know, mentally to, to be better, you know, faster on the, on the track? How can I maximize my, uh, my talents and, and put, you know, put hard work into the mix and, you know, let's see what I can possibly, possibly do. So, 
So that I think is really important. The other and another thing is you know, using sport to showcase sort of diversity and inclusion. And I'm here at NYU and SBS and one of my colleagues, Maria, I see her uh, on the call. We're on the IDBEA committee. So it's inclusion, diversity, belonging, equity, and accessibility. So all of those you know, more important now than ever. And sport is such a great way to showcase how you know, including those values in in sport, in the governance of sport, how sport is played, you know, how fans watch you know, how that impacts all of us. And I, you know, in the, in the clip you showed at the beginning of the, of the session, I said, you know, sport is a language that everybody speaks and I, it's absolutely true and sport should be available to everyone. So I hope that sport organizations and all individuals, all the stakeholders, athletes, fans, coaches, parents, executives, sponsors, you know, the broadcast partners, everyone can use sport as a platform to promote you know, diversity and, uh, and inclusion. So those, those were, those were, uh, you know, a, a few, a few of my hopes for it uh, in, in 2050. Well, even like this year, 2021, I, I hope for all of those things. Definitely. I think I want to wrap up our conversation today. My brain is telling me do a part three, but <laughs> but like but like I think it's like you know it's it's like the quality of the conversation more than the quantity, and I just enjoyed every minute of us like discussing today. So I think like for my last question is the student body at SBS. A lot of I think a lot of them are on the call today is graduate students who are maybe taking the career to the next level or making a very significant turn in their career. What are the message that you want to send to them? Because I think you have been, you got experience with transitioning between careers and like very sharp differences. So what's your, what is your message that you want to send to the students who are undergoing these changes? Excellent question. The, so I, I think as, as an athlete, there are a lot of things that I've I've learned along the way that have been useful in my in my professional life. So so first and foremost, I think is having kind of this crazy sense of confidence in in myself. It, it, it's like you you have to believe in yourself because you know, if you don't, other people certainly are not going to. So you know, believe in yourself always and, and be in charge of your professional development. Again, you're the person, whatever, on the sled, driving yourself down the track or, you know, at the helm, like you, you're the person responsible for making the decisions. So you have to be really proactive about what, you know, what you do, who you network with, you know, doing research and, you know, doing some work you know, on and sort of thinking uh, about what it is that makes you happy or is a good fit professionally. Like a lot of times students will come and say, Professor Meidler, what do you think I should do for an internship? Or what, what, what would be like a good job for me to do? Like, 
Okay, so first of all, you have work to do, uh, you know, with yourself to to think about what's a good fit. So I think that's always like a really important thing to keep in mind. And then perseverance. It is, it, it is so important in, I, like, I don't care what it is you're doing. I mean, for me, I, you know, I, I competed for a very long time and, and sometimes you crash in a race or my coach let my steels on my sled get too hot and I got disqualified or, you know, something happens that you don't expect and you have to be sort of flexible and, and also just, you know, keep going, like know what your you know, know what your long-term goal is when you're an athlete. It's, it's like, okay, I, I want to go to the Olympics in four years. So I'm keeping that big goal in mind while in the short term, looking at the, you know, the smaller steps that I need to take to get there. So focus on like what you need to do every day, but keep in mind what your, like what that big, you know, what that big goal is and do not be deterred. You can do it. And so, you know, perseverance is important and then just probably many, uh, many other things as well. But, you know, make land for yourself with the athlete example. Again, I think it's, you know, that is somewhat easier because, you know, like, okay, the World Cups are this weekend, this weekend, this weekend. My coach is helping me plan my training. We're going to the Olympics. Hopefully this is, this is the plan. But when you are a, you know, when you're a student or you know, you're getting ready to graduate in another year. You you need to make a plan, set some goals, do some networking, do your research. There's, you know, I think there's a lot of sort of self knowledge that you need to sort of cultivate before you can fig- before you can start applying for jobs. Like if you if you don't know what it is that you want to do before you start applying for jobs, it's you, you kind of need to start the other the other way around. But have faith in yourself and keep at it. I'm, I, I know everyone here is like super talented, committed, and going to be great in whatever professional path that you, that you take. So put my email in the chat. If I know there were a couple of questions that we didn't quite get to. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to send me an email. I'm happy to chat on email or Zoom. And if we do Zoom, then you can see my dog again. <laughs> and, and then we'll be back in uh, in person in the fall, which is which is going to be great. So and also I just want to I, I want to mention while we're on here, if anyone if anyone wants to be involved with uh, women in sports, we're going to plan some events for the fall, organize speakers and and do some exciting programming. So please shoot me an email. I think. <laughs> those are all of like my promotional messages so (laughs) thank you thank you for the great advice and also lots of lots of activities happening for our athletes institute this fall and there is flash for our there's flash for our podcast listeners you guys can't see but she's a great dog she's a really great dog so awesome and uh, i would just say one i hope everybody gets to watch some of the olympics in a couple of weeks and and i i want to say like don't don't pay so much attention to like the country medal count because it's actually and it says it in the olympic charter like the games are about you know athletes competing against athletes so like let's watch for like the amazing performances of individual athletes who are from you know your country or or some other country and and the paralympics are you know a couple of weeks after the olympic games so i think we're going to see some great things over the next month of competition in Tokyo.
Definitely a great summer of Olympics and Paralympics games ahead for us. On behalf of the How I Got Here team, thank you so so much. This was, I wish we could do a part three, but like, <laughs> but like you know, there's like I it's know always, you have a lot of other people to yeah. talk to. So. It, it was it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Professor Myler, and thank you so much to everybody for attending today. Have a great summer and watch the Olympics. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you to Professor Myler and all the best wishes for a safe and successful 2020 Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo. Join us next week to hear from Shanice Hawkins, an award-winning corporate veteran with 25 years of experience in global diversity, human capital management, and business. The SBS Replay Podcast is produced by the students of the NYU SBS Student Council with Ali Weaver, April Cardena, Ariana Olivas, Catalina Mejia, Christine Long, Evelyn Tai, Jay Chandiramani, Jessica Blodgett, Jesse Kim, Justin Choi, Maya Kwok, Sam Fox, Sanjana Penmatsa, Ding Wing. Special thanks to the NYU SBS Office of Student Life. Follow us on social media at SBSUSC and at SBSGSC on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. Thank you for listening and for supporting us. Stay safe, take care, and have a wonderful summer.